0: Welcome to The Global Marketing Show, the podcast for all things international business. I'm your host, Wendy Pease, president of Rapport International and a translation expert. Come along with me today as we talk to an expert in the global marketing world about facing their biggest fears, hearing about mistakes they made or saw, discussing best practices, and sharing fun travel language and culture stories. Hello, friends, welcome to another episode of the Global Marketing Show. I always learn something new, so I'm excited to record this episode. But before we do that, let's get to our tidbit. I got a funny one for you, and I'm wondering how many of you know about that. You know how we have punctuation periods and commas and stuff in uh, the English language since you're listening in English? Well, did you know that the Chinese language does not require punctuation? So, go search for it and read up on it, get to know a little bit more. If you like our tidbits, you can certainly go to rapporttranslations.com and subscribe to the tidbits. And a couple of times a month, Rapport International, who's a sponsor of this podcast, sends out some interesting tidbits and facts about culture and language. So, certainly go over there, Rapport, R A P P O R T. Translations.com and sign up for tidbits. So let's introduce our guest today. Ivo Verhog is co founder and CEO of Powerhouse AI a company that provides warehouse automation solutions. So looking forward to getting into that. He's originally from the Netherlands and he's living in Singapore and running a business in the United States. So he truly is multicultural. Ivo, welcome to the Global Marketing Show.
1: Thank you so much, Wendy, for having me.
0: Yes. So talk to me first about your journey. How did you end up living in Singapore?
1: I came here via a program called Entrepreneur First. I always wanted to start my own business. I had something like a couple of years ago on the side and a year or three ago, I thought like, okay, hey, I want to take the leap. I want to take the jump, set up my own startup. On top of that, I also wanted to live abroad. And so that was always a dream I had for a long, long time. And thirdly, I wanted to start a business, but also didn't want it to do it alone. Nobody can do everything alone. Uh, A business is never built alone. And a co-founder is essential. But finding a co-founder is very, very hard stuff. There's a lot of people that have the ambition or the dream to start up a business. But when you actually ask them, like, are you ready right now? The answer is often no, because people are often comfortable or happy with that, like the way it is. And the, the big advantage of, entrepreneur first at a program that I started, that it's actually a co-founder matching program and your first investor. And there I could combine all the three things. So I could live abroad. The program was in Singapore. I could start my own startup and I could find a co-founder. So that's how I ended up here in January 2021, right in the midst of uh, COVID at that time.
0: Oh my goodness. Okay, so you find entrepreneur first and it aligns with what you want to do. Did you have the idea for the business?
1: No, at that moment did not did not have the idea yet. So first of all, it's a co-founder matching program, and there's two people, two people with very different skill sets, but with like similar passions, right? So during that program, I met Kushal, my current uh, co-founder, and we actually start a business off his like, experience in robotics and in warehousing specifically and he saw that a lot of robots in a lot of warehouses were either too expensive or not flexible enough so we started with the assumption like how can we give robotic grade technology in the hands of people and therefore make automation accessible to the majority of warehouses so that's where we started off with when we met about two and a half years ago.
0: Okay, tell me a little bit more about the program. So they accept you into the program. Can you tell yeah. us like who's accepted? How they match you up with partners, you know, what kind yeah. of industries go through that? And then I want to deep dive into how you came up with the idea and what you did to move it forward.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So entrepreneur first is a venture capitalist, a VC, right? And so they're looking for people that they believe could be successful founders. They're looking for people who have the traits of an entrepreneur of a of a founder. They're quite strict with that. I don't know the exact statistics, but I think only one or one and a half percent of the applications gets approved. So quite quite strict. So they set up like a, like a pool of people about twice per year, about 80 people in one group and from there they look at your your personality traits, they look at your motivation, they look at your interests. And then they recommend uh, either some people that you have to chat to or you should talk to. And then it's really up to you know the two of you to determine like, hey, is there a click? Do we really have common interest? Do we work productively together as well? That's a very important metric as well. Then you try and work together for a couple of weeks or a couple of days. You figure out, hey, does it work? Does it not work? If it doesn't work, then you break up, so to say. That's how they call it. You break up. And yeah, and then you just network within that group, maybe find another partner, have those difficult conversations, work together for a couple of days, couple of weeks, figure out, okay, is there a click? If there is a click, yeah, you really take off. If there is no click, that's fine. You just uh, network with the other peers in the group. And it's really a pool of very bright and great people. I've been very fortunate to be part of that as well.
0: Okay, so you meet your partner, and you guys click, you're productive, you work together, you pass. And then you just brainstorm on types of companies you want to start?
1: Yes, best thing is to start from a problem statement instead of from an idea. So we started from a problem statement. If you look at my background specifically, it's a little bit more generalist. I have a consulting background. And my co-founder has a technical background, has specific skills in AI, specific skills in computer vision. And when we met, he had this specific problem statement with regards to robots being not flexible enough, being too expensive. So we had the assumption, and that's where we actually started off with. We had the assumption, what if we make people more productive with robotic grade technology. We literally give it in their hands. So that's the assumption that we started with. And then we started to talk to people within the market. I think we had about 300 conversations with people in like the logistics sector to really figure out, okay, is that assumption what we have? Is that right? What pains do you have? What are your your day-to-day work look like? Like these type of conversation in order to get to a more concrete product idea.
0: And at this point of the idea formulation, are you thinking you're going to go global? Are you thinking about one market?
1: Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. Absolutely. The idea from the beginning is always to make it big. It's also, to be honest, expected. Entrepreneur First is behind us. They're an investor in our company. It's also expected that we grow it big. And that's also in line with our ambition. And especially if you look at Singapore specifically, it's a 5 million people market. It's relatively small. So most companies that start in Singapore, they always have a global perspective already, almost from these, like by design, I'd say.
0: Okay, so that's a real advantage of starting a company in Singapore is you're thinking global from the start, whereas yep. like in the U.S., many companies won't think global from the start.
1: Yeah, it's a huge market, indeed, the U.S. Yeah, that, that that's where these two markets, Singapore and the U.S., definitely, definitely differ if you want to make it big. Like most companies, they need to think global. In the U.S., you can start up a very big company and stay within the country.
0: So if you're thinking global from the start, how does that frame what you're trying to build differently? Or how do you have to think differently when you're thinking global from the start and not just a domestic market?
1: You have to learn about the different pain points and challenges of your target market. Uh, And we figured out actually quite quickly that those pains are a little bit different uh, among the different countries. And Maybe Singapore is as well a little bit the odd one out in Southeast Asia. It's an extremely wealthy country with an extremely high standard of living, contrary to a lot of the countries that are around that have significantly lower salaries, have also a bigger labor force. So, one thing we figured out, like we actually started with the assumption, or Actually, the the main goal behind our company is to support warehouses to rely less on scarce human labor. But when we started talking to people in Indonesia or in Malaysia, we actually figured out that a lot of issues within the warehouse are solved by adding more headcount to it, which is not really an option in Singapore, let alone in Europe or in the US. So... It really made us realize a lot of these Southeast Asian countries are probably not an ideal target market for us. And then I maybe make the bridge to the U.S. That's also one of the reasons why we started to and now really focus on the United States, where there is a shortage in labor, where labor costs are really high, where warehouses have to become more data driven because they are more process aware. That was something that we learned along the way and figured out along the way that, hey, there are these very clear differences between countries and the issues they face.
0: Okay. So you were looking for markets that really had a labor shortage or expensive labor. That's where you were going to do best. Now, tell us more about what your company does.
1: In short, uh, we make the job of the warehouse associate as easy as just taking pictures with a mobile device. So really to enable warehouses to be much faster, but also less reliant on very scarce labor. So the issue with current automation solutions like robots and drones are that they're very expensive, not very flexible. So by making a very asset light solution, like our solution runs on a mobile phone, that we aim to make warehouse automation accessible to the majority of warehouses. And we support, these warehouses to become, first of all, fully digital. And we use uh, artificial intelligence, AI features to automate all kinds of counting and checking tasks within the warehouse. So think of taking a picture of a pallet uh, to count the number of boxes or take a picture of a shipping document and compare the content within the document with the content on the pallet or the data in your systems. So that's how we support these associates and those warehouses to really become faster, more accurate, and more data-driven.
0: That's fantastic. So anybody can walk around and just take pictures. So it's not the pick and pack part of the warehouse, but it really is the inventory and the counting that goes behind the scenes.
1: Yeah. In the end, warehousing is all about picking, packing, and storing the right items in the right quantity as efficient as possible. And It is really in the right quantity and the right item. So in every process within the warehouse, somebody is checking or verifying something. And that's what we automate.
0: Okay. When did you start and how is your market entry been going?
1: So we started in May 2021, initially with a slightly different idea, we pivoted in 2022, I have to recall when it was exactly, that must have been somewhere in middle of 2022. So we had a different product idea. In short, it was a solution for the picking process within the warehouse that would automatically check if you would pick the right goods, but it was a hardware solution. So it required us to literally create a device. We figured it didn't have enough ROI. So based on what we learned from that, based on the conversations we had, we actually pivoted to our current product. So that's how our product has evolved over the past two and a half years.
0: Okay. And so where are you now? Are you still in development or are you in in the market? Are you selling?
1: Yeah, absolutely. We are in the market. We are working with companies like DHL who are using our solutions. We've been working with Unilever, DSV in the US, also with a couple of large and really renowned logistics companies or manufacturers. We are fully commercialized.
0: And what did you have to do to adapt that or can is the same platform used across the world
1: yes we use the same platform acro- across the world but like within logistics and within warehousing you actually sell a solution instead of directly a product so every warehouse every company is slightly different and we adapt to that really to make these solutions suit to that specific warehouse environment so we made sure that also on the product side we are as modular and as configurable as possible.
0: Handle the different languages. I would imagine that the people in the warehouses don't all speak English or Dutch or Chinese yeah. or <laughs> one yeah, language. That's yeah,
1: that's true, that's true. I mean, it's maybe the advice. So we've mainly been focusing now on Singapore and the United States, also on the Netherlands. And in all three of those countries, the warehousing companies that we have been working with quite proficient in English. But we have indeed on a roadmap to expand to other languages like indeed Spanish or uh, if you talk about Singapore here, like Chin- Chinese, Malay or Tamil or Hindu, for example.
0: Okay. And so uh, right now it's all in English. So you'll, you will have to adapt that. Yeah, that yep. makes a lot of sense. What yep. have been some of the mistakes you've experienced
1: To be honest, we realized too late that Southeast Asia has another market. So that has been something that we should have realized quicker in my opinion. And also one thing we learned is the importance of focusing on a single market or on a very specific either niche or geography, because it's very hard as a startup with limited personnel is to focus and get your message across in a larger pool of countries so that specific focus that's also something that we learned over time and that we didn't do all the way from the beginning because we thought we can deploy remotely we use the internet and everyone can find us on the internet but that's not really how it works right um, You still have to guide people through EFEA. You still have to get your message across. So where do you get your message across? Like all these things you have to think about and you better focus because of limited resources and time.
0: Yeah, there was an earlier podcast with Brittany Cooper who talked about that. She worked at a company that offered travel services and they tried to go international all at once and the company didn't end up making it because their reach was too wide and too thin. And she said, looking yeah. back, they wish they would have narrowed in and then expanded yeah, from I mean, that.
1: Absolutely. And, and we also learned how important the FaceTime still is or in real life, like meeting in real life with our prospects and clients. Logistics is, is a market that's a little bit more traditional. So for that reason, we also are, are building up our team in the US, for example, and we do fly to our prospects. We do meet them in real life. And if you want to do that all over the world, it's just simply impossible as a startup. So you have to make tough decisions. That also means that sometimes we get clients from a country that we do not support that we have to say no to. And that's, of course, very hard if you're in the earlier stages of building a business to actually say no to business. But it actually is the key to grow in the longer term.
0: That's interesting. So you've had companies and countries that you're not supporting reach out to, like European countries, or which countries would you not support at this point?
1: Yeah, absolutely. We also get, for example, Nigeria, India, we had Mozambique, we have Brazil. That's just much harder for us to support at at the moment.
0: Right. So, well, you know, you're going to have global success when you're starting to see that. Is there a way that you could build a module that you could then translate that they could have something off the shelf? Or is that just take too many resources from a startup to try to do that?
1: Off the shelf, yes. We aim to to go towards uh, what we then call product-led growth. Um, But we also have to keep our market in mind. and Logistics, where uh, two characteristics One, and still like personal FaceTime is is appreciated. And secondly, a warehouse, like maybe to the outside, where a warehouse is a warehouse, like everything is the same, but it's actually not true when you dive deeper into the processes. So having a fully off the shelf, out of the box solution, of course, it's a dream that we work towards, but I don't think it's too realistic in the short term, given the market dynamics.
0: Okay. We've worked with clients before at Rapport International where we'll go in and help them set up a buyer's journey online so they can go in, read about it, understand how it would apply, and then purchase the product so there's minimal support. But with your solution, somebody does need to go to the warehouse, understand what's happening to help them set up and learn how to use it.
1: It's not required. We can do fully remote deployments as well. We have run fully remote pilots as well uh, without us visiting the warehouse, but we just see that, first of all, it's very much appreciated if we pass by and it makes communication a lot easier. It's worth the trip, both from a client perspective as well as from a perspective of us being business owners is to actually visit the client.
0: Okay. Is there any kind of warehouses that you particularly specialize in? Or, Mm -hmm. I mean, did you have to niche down on that for your target market? Or are warehouses enough different that it's anybody who's warehousing stuff?
1: No, no, no. We definitely specialize there as well. So we focus on the larger size warehouses, so above 100,000 square feet. And in general, in sectors like healthcare, pharmaceutical, fast moving consumer goods consumer goods itself and automotive those are uh, those are the ones that we focus on on most or where we see most value for a product like ours
0: okay so it's going to be smaller things that you're counting and they're moving fast and so you've got to have accurate statistics to know what you have
1: yeah mainly like warehouses with a lot of turnover or warehouses where accuracy is very important, like healthcare or pharmaceutical, where you have to check a lot of stuff. That's where we excel.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. What advice would you give to companies that are starting up on how they pick the target market? Because I can see that was a little bit of a pain point earlier on when you were working with it. You had to pick countries and the types of warehouses and industries that you were working on. So a lot of research Mm -hmm. went in there. You talked to 300 people, but how did you go about building that? So you knew who your targets were.
1: Yeah. It's very important to realize what you actually solve and what the value proposition of your product is. Uh, and and also what your technical limitations are for example so like these are some of the dimensions that went into our decision what we solve is we make warehouses faster and more accurate but what is the advantage of speed so oftentimes you can put a number on that and you know that in higher income countries like an absolute speed improvement is worth more than in lower income countries for example we also have some technical Limitations, for example, where we require certain data for the product to work. And uh, once we started talking to people in different countries, we also figured that in some countries, without going too technical, the foundation of data was better than in other countries. All these elements went into the decision criteria. Next to it, uh, we are a VC backed company. So we also have to think which market will enable us to grow fast first of all. And secondly, it will also enable us to, to raise a successful round. So we are, for example, funded by Y Combinator, which is an American investor. Lots of the most successful investors are based in the U.S. as well. And they appreciate it if you have a presence in the U.S. market because they know that market better. So, And that's another argument to look more at the U.S. market. So there are a lot of levers, a lot of things that went into that decision that the U.S. is the number one target market for us.
0: Now, with the other companies that are in Entrepreneur First, does the U.S. end up being the number one market? Or what do you know about which markets they're targeting?
1: I actually do see that more and more. And maybe it's also because a lot of the companies that were started in EF were started by people who are not necessarily from Singapore. So that's also a thing. It means uh, that the people who came here have smaller networks, of course, have a lot of affinity with the culture, but haven't grown here. Really starting a business in a new country with with a different culture is an additional challenge. And so that's one. Secondly, What we also see, a lot of startups at the moment focus on software, software as a service. And in Southeast Asia, that's still a very hard sell. And in Europe and the U.S., companies and people are much more used to paying for software. So I see also with a lot of friends here who are great people, great founders, who are actually making that move towards the the U.S.,
0: Interesting. And where are a lot of the people that have been accepted from the program from?
1: Very diverse. From from Canada to France to Spain to Philippines to Indonesia to Singapore itself. It's truly a global cohort.
0: And they've been able to figure out how to pick people that could grow a global business. Yeah. Huh. That is so fascinating to me. We're running out of time and I could go on and keep picking your brain about this because I think they've got a real different niche by doing that and pulling people in like you and the other people. Yeah. What advice would you give to global marketers if they're starting or trying to grow their companies internationally?
1: To grow internationally, specifically, be there. Well,
0: or to grow big. Your mission is to grow big, and that means global from where you sit. So what advice, yeah, for growing big? I mean,
1: in order to grow big, first of all, you need to think big. That's the most important thing. And get a superstar team. That's very important. A successful company is built by people. So if you have ambitious people, people that are curious, people that take accountability and responsibility, and people who have specific you know, knowledge and skills in the market that you are serving. I think that's very, very important. And I think that's also what Entrepreneur First is looking at when they select their founders for their program.
0: Okay. Do you think that's a natural thing or is there ways to break somebody who may be a superstar? to break the blinders down, to help them think bigger?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. There are truly differences. I'm originally Dutch and Europeans already have a different mindset than Americans. I think Americans in general think bigger than Europeans. But now I'm generalizing, I realize that, but for you as Americans to sell, it, it seems like you're natural at it, right? Where I, learned a lot about that is by surrounding yourself with other founders. That is super, super important. Other founders who are in the exact same situation who also indeed have to sell, also have to expand. You will learn so much from that, so much. That's probably next to the program that I participated in, EF, probably the most valuable thing in contributing to our growth and my personal growth as well so surround yourself with founders
0: that's fantastic advice that is really good advice is go find your tribe
1: yeah it it actually now I realize how important so sometimes I don't think about it but I just realized it is of vital importance imagine all your friends having having a nine-to-five job being fully settled, do not have you know th- those dreams of starting a business, it's very hard to succeed in that environment. And of course, everyone is free to make their life choices. But if you want to be successful, you will have to change your tribe as well, or at least expose yourself to a tribe of founders for a significant amount of time of your week.
0: Yeah, there was an organization called Count Me In where I found a bunch of women founders. There is Entrepreneurs Organization, which I'm part of, which is a global organization yeah. with founders, and that certainly inspires me. And then there is another one of women, IWAC, International Women's Entrepreneurial Council, Uh, women entrepreneurs around the world. And so you have Entrepreneurs First, which is based out of Singapore. So if you're in Singapore, well, no, anybody around the world that is interested in doing that could reach out.
1: Yeah, they have a global network. So they're not only in Singapore. They're also in, I believe, in New York, in London, in, in Berlin. So they are in multiple places, also part of YC. So there's also that network. And in general, there are always some communities of entrepreneurs or founders. So yeah, my advice would be find that community and become part of it. It it will change your life, like literally.
0: All right. Well, that's a good place to end. That's really good advice. And I haven't uh, heard that one before in the global marketing show. So that's good. All right. You know that we always end the show with the question.
1: Yeah.
0: (laughs) The question is, what is your favorite foreign word?
1: Okay. I got two in my mind. One is English and one is Dutch. I'll start with the Dutch one. And it's the word bolleboos. And bolleboos means a bright head or a smart person in Dutch. And why is it nice? I think it sounds very nice, in my opinion. And I think a lot of Dutch people think so too, because it has been chosen as the most beautiful word in the Dutch language over the past 150 years. <laughs> uh, so that's... <laughs> yeah by like the main dictionary company in the Netherlands called Vandale. Okay, so, so it's
0: Bollabos, which yeah. literally translates to bride's hat?
1: Bride hat or or a clever person, a smart person. Yeah.
0: Bride, like a, you know, a groom and a bride that are getting married?
1: Oh, no, no, no. Like a smart person. Oh, you...
0: oh, I'm sorry. Bride. Yeah.
1: Bride. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. As opposed to my a, Dutch a... accent. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. I'm glad I asked for clarification yeah. like a bright hat as opposed to like a dunce cap which would be somebody not so smart but yeah, this would exactly. be a bright hat as you're exactly. a smart person vo-lo-vo. So that's yeah. a great one I love that <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: okay yeah. and what's your English one
1: my English one is introspective Ooh. so People sometimes ask, what is the the number one superpower you'd like to have? And for me, that is to fully get to know myself. And I think that is a lifelong journey. And in order to get to know yourself, you need to be introspective. You need to reflect. It's something that everyone should do. And not just once per year, but constantly. It makes life so much better if you're introspective, if you're intentional. So that's the reason why I chose that word specifically.
0: Yes. And it's not easy to get to know yourself. There's things about you that you won't like. (laughs) And you can't walk away from them.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. But it is so
0: true. You can't love anybody else. You can't get to know anybody else unless you know where you're coming from. And that's like the number one. Advice on doing cross-cultural work, too, is because you've got to know your own culture before you can get to know somebody else's culture. So, yeah, Yeah. Ivo, this has been such a fabulous and interesting podcast. If people want to find out more about Powerhouse AI or connect with you, how can they find you?
1: Yeah, they can, of course, connect with me on LinkedIn. So search for my name, Evo Verhaag. I hope you will have not too much trouble in spelling it. It's a little hard.
0: Why don't you go ahead and spell it? Yeah.
1: Okay, I'll spell it. So it's I-V-O. That's my first name. And the last name is V-E-R-H-A-E-G-H. And otherwise, right. if you go to powerhouseai.com or you type in the company name, then you will always find me somewhere.
0: Okay, good. And we'll put all that information on the show notes, too. So if you didn't catch it while he was talking about it, it will all be there. Well, thank thank you. you so much for taking the time to join me today, Ivo.
1: Thank you. I really enjoyed the conversation, Wendy. Thanks a lot for having me.
0: Oh, sure. All right. If you enjoyed this, listeners, please forward this on to anybody you know that works in a warehouse, particularly in his target markets of Singapore or the United States. Sounds like it's a fascinating company that they founded. It's run by a couple of great people that have been screened very difficult to get into entrepreneurs first. And then also give us a five-star rating or subscribe to this so you can continue to hear these great interviews about global marketing. So we will talk to you next time. And thanks for tuning in. That's a wrap for this session. A big thanks to you for listening to the Global Marketing Show. Hope you had just as much fun as I did. New sessions launch weekly on all places you find podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and of course on our website. If you know someone interested in this topic, please tell them about us. Au revoir for now.